Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking on Thursday, October 20th, 2022. We are under three weeks from Election Day, which is November 8th. Absentee balloting is already underway. Early voting starts October 29th and goes through November 6th. So the 2022 election is here, and it's time to make sure you know when, where, and how you're voting and also start to really be thinking about who you are going to vote for. So that's where we can also be helpful. On the ballot this year in New York are races for statewide positions of governor and lieutenant governor as a ticket, state controller, state attorney general, one U.S. Senate seat, all of the state's U.S. House of Representatives seats, and all of the seats in the state legislature, 213 in total, that's 63 in the state Senate and 150 in the state assembly, and still more. There's also a statewide ballot question on an Environmental Bond Act proposal that's before you, the voters, to vote yes or no across the state. And then there's another three ballot questions for just New York City voters that relate to racial justice proposals and the New York City Charter. You can find our two podcast episodes on those ballot referendums at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette website. There is a lot to be thinking about. Today, we're focused on the race for New York State Controller, and it's the morning after the lone televised debate in that race between my guest today, Paul Rodriguez, the Republican and Conservative Party nominee for State Controller, and his Democratic opponent, the incumbent uh, Controller Tom DiNapoli. You can catch Controller DiNapoli on a companion episode here of Max Politics discussing his reelection campaign and his tenure in office, so find that, as well as this discussion here with Paul Rodriguez. And I also recommend to people the one-hour Spectrum News debate between Mr. Rodriguez and Comptroller DiNapoli was a very substantive discussion. We'll follow up on some of that here, but you can find that video online to catch up on that debate. It was a a good exchange of ideas and a a chance to see how the two candidates uh, differentiate themselves. So my discussion here with New York State Comptroller, Republican and Conservative Party nominee Paul Rodriguez in just a moment. Very quickly, for those maybe less familiar, the Comptroller is the state's chief fiscal officer responsible for ensuring state and local governments use taxpayer money effectively and efficiently, serving as sole trustee of the roughly $270 billion New York State Common Retirement Fund, that's the pension system, also administering the pension system for over a million beneficiaries. The New York State Comptroller also runs state accounting and payroll, reports on state finances. That includes oversight of the roughly $220 billion New York State budget. The Comptroller's office manages and issues state debt, reviews contracts, audits payments, audits state agencies and public benefit corporations, including the MTA, for example, investigates operations of other entities like the New York City local government and still more. The state controller's office has satellite locations around the state, but is based in Albany and employs somewhere around 2,700 people, according to the controller's website. So that's an overview of the pretty massive responsibilities of the state controller's office. This office often doesn't get the attention it deserves but we're trying to make sure that you're ready to vote between your choices here this year for a four-year term to New York State Comptroller. Paul Rodriguez, the Republican and Conservative Party nominee for State Comptroller, is with me now. Paul, thanks very much for taking the time. How are you? 
Very good, Ben. Thank you uh, for the invitation and the opportunity to, uh, to have a good conversation with you. My pleasure. Um, we spoke uh, last year. You were running for New York City Comptroller, and that was a good, uh, good discussion when we spoke then. And looking forward to this conversation as well as you are seeking the state controller position. Say it a takes bit a about- little bit like uh, Michael Corleone on Godfather Three. <laughs> Try to go out, but they just pull me they back pull in. Pull you back in, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, just just zooming out, really, I mean, you uh, I want you to speak about your background here because I didn't I didn't purposely I didn't want to extend my intro too much. I want to give you a chance to just give some of the highlights of your background and we can talk a little bit about that. But just generally speaking, I mean, um, you know, you 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 seem like uh, the type of candidate Republicans should be running for an office like this. And I, I can see why they recruited you to run. Uh, statewide after, um, you know, you had a little taste of, of the politics last year. I know you run for office uh, once a while back previously, but say a little bit about your background and your qualifications here and, and what's brought you to this moment. Of course. Uh, well, personally, I, I come from a fairly uh, modest background. I was born in Queens, New York, to Puerto Rican parents, working class parents. My mother was an executive assistant. Uh, my father, a uh, union carpenter, who had actually just come back from Vietnam. He had fought uh, with the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Uh, they actually, my parents knew each other for a while, but you know they had a significant age difference, so they didn't really get together until they were older. Uh, unfortunately, short, shortly after I was born, they separated, so my mother raised me alone pretty much my whole life here, but also in San Juan, Puerto Rico, where I spent about 10 years, and I actually learned Spanish before English. And then uh, during my adolescence and college years, uh, we lived in Roswell, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. And like I said, because I was raised by a single mom and knowing all of that entails, I've always had to work very hard since I was young. I basically worked my way through school. What my grandmother used to always ingrain in me, Paul, you have to study hard, work hard, get a degree, get a good job and take care of your mother. That, That is sort of what shaped, in fact, a lot of my worldview. So when people often ask me why I'm a Republican or conservative, I said, well, really, my values determine my politics. And I wasn't necessarily raised to be, per se, politically conservative. And it was just this sort of traditional outlook and this self-sufficient um, exp- uh, sort of uh, worldview that I had. So basically, I worked my way through school, got my economics degree at the University of Georgia, Then I ended up cold calling my way into a job at Solomon Brothers, where I worked as an equity research analyst. Now, for those of you who don't know, an equity research analyst is the those people that you hear often in the financial media when they say that a particular bank put a buy or sell recommendation on a on the stock of a particular company with a target price over 12 to 18 months. That's what I did, which means I did very in-depth analyses of companies, industries, geographies. So I covered throughout my career first what are considered developed markets and then moving on to the emerging markets area. Um, So I covered companies and industries in both US, Europe, Latin America, Asia Pacific. Um, So that gave me sort of a very broad background, not, not just in terms of geographies and different types of companies, but different types of industries, because I then transitioned to the credit side, where as a credit analyst, I looked at even a lot more industries. And then eventually, I, I, I sort of ended my, my full financial career as a corporate banker, again, working with primarily US-based multinationals, 
first trying to do business with them in Latin America and then in Asia Pacific, because Latin America worked for Spanish Bank, Asia Pacific was for an Australian bank. But that broad background, and then along the way, I also had a couple of stints in the wealth management side, basically as a financial advisor. So I've worked with every type of entity and then also work with every type of client from an individual all the way to the CEOs and CFOs of multinational corporations and the corporations themselves. So I do have a very broad background professionally. And more recently, I had been working at the Archdiocese of New York uh, in their development, uh, their development office. The de- development in nonprofit speak is basically their fundraising. Fundraising, department. yes. And what, 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 what I was meaning to, I was going to ask you about that. What made you take that transition? Why, why leave the, I mean, you're obviously still working with in the world of, of finance, broadly speaking, doing development, mm-hmm. but, but that's, a, that's a pretty different, that's a pretty big shift. What, what precipitated that? Well, one thing, for example, when I transitioned from equity to credit is because in my twenties, the emerging markets were very volatile. And I was a bit, I say, I was a bit like a gunslinger. I would be in a bank a couple of years, another bank a couple of years and what have you. So I transitioned to credit because I wanted some stability. But even within the credit and, and corporate banking world, the only constant in finance is really change. And you go through umpteenth restructurings and you survive some, you don't survive others. The thing is, after nearly 30 years, about 27 years, um, and sort of the last uh, the last bank that I left, which was actually Morgan Stanley, I, I really had to kind of reassess what exactly do I want to do? I want to continue with these, with this, excuse me, or do I want to take those skills, such as my relationship building skills, my um, business development skills, obviously my financial and money management skills and capital raising skills. Could I apply those to another area? And also, as you get older, you tend to value different things. So I think I did a lot of good as a banker, but I was looking to do good in a different way. And I may not be the most religious person in the world, but I thought that when this opportunity presented itself with the archdiocese, which is something that sort of came out of out of left field in many ways, uh, it was actually my wife's suggestion, if you, if you believe it. Um, I, I felt it was a good way to apply that professional experience in a way to support the Catholic Church and the charitable and pastoral work that it does and to try to show that the church in a, in a better light. And again, it was a way to do good in a different way where I am really, um, I'm really kind of sort of, you know, it, it's more towards doing good for all my fellow men, if you will, or, or for my fellow Catholics, as opposed to just simply finding a way to maximize revenues or minimize costs or maximize profits for a particular uh, corporate entity, for example. So, so, so let, let's take that to the role of New York State Comptroller, uh, because that, that reminds me of sort of some of the difference about how you've spoken about uh, filling the role, right? And the and the and being the sole trustee of the pension fund and some of your criticism of Tom DiNapoli, the incumbent, and some of the way you'd bring a different perspective. So lay out for us, broadly speaking, um, you know, how, what your pitch is for voters to select you as the controller. Tom DiNapoli has been in office since 2007. He's running on this sort of uh, message of of stability, of a sure hand, of experience. Um, he admits he's not, you know, the loudest voice in the room or particularly uh, flashy and so forth. 
but that he's, you know, sort of a, a steady experienced hand in the role. You want to shake it up. You want voters to consider uh, a new controller for the state. So what's the what's the pitch? And especially what would you do differently than it's been done over these last number of years? Well, it's not so much an issue about shaking it up and being showy. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that the controller is supposed to be the primary watchdog providing oversight over any activity where state funding is utilized. And, you know, the unfortunate truth is that during the 15 years that Mr. DiNapoli has been in office, it has coincided with 15 years of the worst uh, of one of the worst waves of corruption in state government. So I I think everyone seems to agree, or at least I was corrected about this. They say it's not everybody, but it's definitely people in Albany seem to agree, particularly politicians. That Tom DiNapoli is a very nice man. And actually, I met him yesterday. He's a, he is a very nice man. But unfortunately, part of the reason why he even said he was selected by a bipartisan group uh, when Alan Hevesy went to jail was that he is the type of person he's not going to rock the boat. He's not going to really stick his neck out. He's very happy to punch down. And he did a little bit of that to me yesterday after the debate. He's happy to punch down and go after petty corruption, $5,000 here, $10,000 there. But when it comes to really holding those in power accountable, so for example, and this is one of the most glaring examples that even even the most uh, the most loyal Democrat even has to question, saying, "Well, we have a six hundred and thirty-seven million dollar no bid contract that was giving given to this company, Digital Gadgets, for COVID testing, and the recipient of that contract, Digital Gadgets, the owners." was a family that had never really given to Kathy Hoku previously. But that year, miraculously, they all maxed out to the tune of $300,000 in donations. So you say, no, it's not illegal for contract recipients to donate to politicians. But that at least has to raise an eyebrow. And a controller who I think is doing his or her job would do more than just saying, well, doesn't look good. But, you know, I can't really, I can't prove quid pro quo. So then I, I, it's not really my job. And yesterday at the the debate, he kept just saying, well, you know, it's not really what I can do. What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? And I, and I try to tell him, listen, a scroll isn't going to come down from God and fall on your lap or some email. isn't just going to be sent to you saying, thank you, Governor Hoko for that, that prime you overpriced contract. Here's a $300,000 in donations that I promised you. You're never going to find that. So what you need is someone, A, who is inquisitive, and B, who will have the courage to look further, to look more in depth. Uh, perhaps, I don't know if it's his lack of the financial background, or, or maybe he's got a different understanding of what auditing and really reviewing means. It's not just making sure the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted. It's kind of making sure that you're looking out for conflicts of interest. Because part of the controller's job, I believe, is managing risk as well for the state government. So how can you be expected to be the representative of the taxpayers, the watchdog to make sure that there's no, you know, the the very overused term fraud, waste and abuse? If your attitude is, well, you know, it's not really my thing. And a lot of the cancers he gave yesterday, well, you know, the controller's office doesn't really have a a hand to play here. It doesn't have a hand to play in this. doesn't have a hand to play over there. Well, the controller has a very powerful bully pulpit. As I mentioned to him, you can be 
commenting on everything. If you tell me you can review a contract before it's awarded, you can certainly look at it after, or you can express concerns from the information that is made public. There's a lot that can be done, and it's not really for the purposes of being disruptive. It's for the purposes of looking out for the best interest of the taxpayers, which at the end of the day is the reason that we should all be striving uh anyone who strives to run for office that's what we're supposed to be here to do is to serve the public and and to really make life better for new yorkers but if it's just an issue well you know so uh, tell us what what you would have done differently you you would have as soon as you saw this contract or or the donations you would have done what held held a press conference outside the governor's mansion or or you know what what would what would you have done if you were a controller to either prevent some of this or to sort of get out ahead of it quickly or you know to respond to it as you're saying what would that look like in this in that specific situation there's been a lot of attention on this you know uh alleged pay to play or at least this apparent you know pay to play culture um new york's very high donation limits allow a lot of this those are set to come down after this election at least a bit um but there's no doing business with the state limits you know that are in place like they have in new york city um, but but what would you do ahead of this in response to it? Um, how would that look differently under a Paul Rodriguez uh, controllership than uh, well, Tom Napoli? As I did mention, definitely more transparency and communication are the key. And in fact, Michael Michael Henry, the Attorney General candidate, and I we did conduct a press conference related to this and another similar contract uh, in Albany, calling this out. And it's something we've continued to call out. So it certainly needs to be. Uh, a greater voice, because the controller is is nothing if not a voice for the taxpayers, a voice for New Yorkers. And if the controller isn't really, like I mentioned in the debate, you got to shine a light on it. You may be limited by certain, um, you may have certain limitations as to what you can do. Certain contracts that for either emergency powers or because uh, former Governor Cuomo took certain powers away, like those contracts later to Sunir CUNY, Yes, there are limitations, but there's no limitations on that bully pulpit and how you utilize it and how you call out um, how you call out the the people in power. You need to do that. If you're not willing to do that, if basically you put out these wonderful press releases with the bells and whistles about we in conjunction with the state police went after this retiree who cashed two four thousand dollar checks instead of one, uh, one of them being fraudulent. And we're prosecuting her. Great. Again. Or another one that says, well, we just caught this employee who was padding her hours to the tune of an additional $131 in compensation per month over the course of about seven years. So she ended up, I guess, bilking the state out of about $11,000. Mind you, all these things, you really should look after them. But I think as controller when so much uh, seemingly glaring pay-to-play corruption is happening in front of your eyes, where people are seeing it, people it's almost like even people are scratching their heads and going, seriously, how can this be legal? The controller needs to prioritize or at least also make room to look at some major potential corrupt uh a corrupt activity that is taking place and that has been going on for far too long. And personally, I'm also a purist. I know that they're trying to do this six month, uh, perhaps um, 
not not allowing contributions during the the bidding process of a mm-hmm. contract or maybe like a six month quiet period. I personally believe that there should be uh, in the same way that as an analyst, when I covered companies, I try not to invest in the companies that I covered because of potential conflict of interest. Uh, or that I try not to invest in companies that I was doing business with as a banker. I think there really should be, uh, if anything, a complete, basically saying no donations. If you're bidding on a contract, there shouldn't be a donation prior or afterwards and keep it like that. If you just say, like, say six months, like I said in the debate, you can say, okay, during the bidding process, I'm gonna get, not going to give you uh, any donations, but the way that politics works and the way corruption works is not so direct. There's nothing that says, okay, I'll get this contract. I don't can't give you anything now. But six months down the line, I could always be donating another three hundred thousand dollars to you. I got to uh, tell this you, this is the way the real world works. Doesn't, not, yeah, but that doesn't sound particularly conservative. How does it not sound conservative? Well, it sounds like a very you know very strict limit on people's uh, freedoms, right? The freedom to donate to you know political candidate that you you can donate however much money you want to political candidate. But if you're soliciting business from that political candidate, that's quite a different. Keep in mind, I'm also come from the financial industry, which is one of the most highly, or not so much anymore, one of the most highly regulated industries where you're limited to a two hundred and fifty dollar contribution to a politician. Uh, and and even then, you have to jump through hoops for compliance because they're concerned about about conflicts of interest, about uh, potential bribery. For example, particularly when you're at the at the retail level, so financial advisor, you're you're issuing bonds uh, on you know, or you may be marketing bonds issued by a municipality or by a state entity. And because of that nature, since you're soliciting or you may be selling those bonds, you're limited to being able to donate, again, $250 to either um, either a municipal candidate, state candidates, or what have you. So another alternative could be simply to limit the amount of money you can give, like we're saying, but definitely lower that limit considerably. Now, if you're a private citizen... You're a business owner. You want to give money to a politician. That's great. But keep in mind that there should be a trade-off. You want to give a million dollars to a politician? Fine. But then don't be bidding for, let's say, a $10 million contract because, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter how much you go and say, oh, no, this was – I didn't – or like Governor Hochul says, I didn't know about it. Or mm-hmm. maybe I did, but I would do it all again the same way. No. I don't think that's the appropriate way to think, to do those things. And if you want to instill confidence in New Yorkers that they have a government that is clean and that is accountable to its people, you, you can't have this sort of thing. And it's been going for far too long and no one really seems to take it seriously or are they or they just basically accept it. But Mr. DiNapoli's attitude is entirely, hey, what am I supposed to do with that? Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, yeah, yeah, you look yeah, at the yeah. debate, it goes, what am I supposed to do with no, that? No, listen, I, I I am also interviewing Tom DiNapoli, as I mentioned in the intro, and, you know, got into some of this a bit more with him, more generally speaking, um, about sort of his reticence to weigh in on issues, right? He He likes to say, this is the responsibility of the governor and the state legislature, and then my office will do oversight, we'll do analysis, we'll do audits, and we'll come in with sort of a you know, just the facts, here's what the numbers say, and not taking a lot of stances on things like, you know, he, he questioned you, for example, about this environmental bond act that's on the ballot. Uh, 
you were both asked about a congestion pricing. Uh, he didn't want to give a, a firm stance on whether it should, you know, move ahead. Um, so th- there's a variety of ways in which he is very hesitant. And this is something I brought up to him, uh, you know, to, to weigh on things. And you're saying you would take a, a basically a, a, a hugely different approach to the office to use that bully pulpit to speak up on all manner of things. So I, I because I it's you. not yes, because it's not based on my political point of view on a particular issue is based on whether this particular issue has an impact on the taxpayers, mm-hmm. has an impact on the state's finances. So let's talk about let's talk potential. about pricing then for a second. The mm-hmm. the um Criticism, of course, of congestion pricing is it adds another fee to lots of drivers and they are, you know, all manner of people. Obviously, they are, you know, in some data shows, they're wealthier than, you know, the the sort of average New York uh, City resident and the average um, subway rider and so forth. But, uh, you know, lots of sort of people just going about their business around the city. It's another fee on them. Uh, on the other hand, the, obviously, the arguments for it are try to reduce congestion, try to, you know, keep the city moving better for the buses and the sort of essentials. Um, and it's very much pegged to revenue for the MTA capital plan. It is supposed to fill, you know, a pretty sizable portion of that capital plan. So how do you evaluate this congestion pricing plan and say, this shouldn't move forward? Um, what do you do about, you know, funding the MTA capital plan then? Well, first and foremost, uh, I think people tend to forget that the main reason why we have increased congestion in Manhattan is largely government created. Starting with Bloomberg to the present, and you should, and you know this, how we reduced a lot of drivable space by creating more green or let's say pedestrian areas, by putting in bike lanes and bike racks, by expanding the number of bus, bus lanes to two. All of these things created, made it even more and more difficult to maneuver yourself around the city as a driver. If I look at the way things were 20, 30 years ago, mind you, you can have an argument as to whether it was better before or better now, but this is mostly not the result of simply just having a, a huge influx of just additional cars. That could be part of it. But the congestion pricing is largely government created. And now we want to punish commuters who want to come to the city, because keep in mind, we are in a post-COVID world where we have hybrid and remote working. We have a significant decline in public safety and rising crime in the city where people don't want to ride the subways. Also, after working home, as I mentioned, for for such a long time due to the pandemic, many are saying, well, why do I want to commute two to three hours a day? I can get another job fully remote or maybe coming only once a week sometimes even paying more. I know in the nonprofit sector that happened a lot. I, we had in my in, in, in my uh, organization uh, at the Archdiocese se- several people who left because they said, you know what, I don't want to come back to the office. I can work for another nonprofit, make more money, mm-hmm. and stay home. So that's one of the issues. And then I think also the congestion price, in many ways, you're trying to punish people. You're, and as I mentioned, you're trying to bully them into somehow increasing the MTA ridership, you're not going to be bullying them. You have the few people who say, you know what, I won't take the subway because of crime, but I'm willing to drive into the city. But you're, but then now with this commuter tax, you're just punishing them 
for doing that and you're making them poor. What you really need to tackle, and it isn't just the controller, I think it's really the policy across the board, is you will need to reprioritize public safety in New York City. Until you do that, until you make the, the subway safe again, until you make them clean, until you, uh, you, know, you, you actually enforce uh, penalties against fair jumping and those type of things, you know, you're not going to be able to sort of bail yourself out on the back of commuters. And and the thing is, um, or, or forcing them to ride the subway, it's just not going to happen. We have in, in New York City, occupancy in prime office space, uh, it, it was below 50%. It may be a little bit higher than that, but it's nowhere near to full capacity. We're talking about building more office space, for, for example, in Penn Station. Yeah. And again, it's the same issue until you actually deal with the crime the homelessness, the drugs, uh, the mental, uh, the people who with mental illness around that area, you know, you can build very nice buildings. No one's going to want to go work in them. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, and I've said this many times as well, one of the necessary pillars for economic development for the city or for the state is public safety because you don't want to, you don't want to work, invest, or live in a place where you don't feel safe. You definitely don't want your children there, and that seems to be what's being lost. In this conversation, we keep talking about the capital wow. and all these things. But if you actually deal with the true problems that we're facing, that's what's going to uh, bring back commuters, will bring back uh, tourists to the city, and then will bring back revenue. But these little additional fees and taxes and, and surcharges, I don't think it's the answer. Definitely is not a, a long term answer. And it's just going to cost to have more people leave the state. We've already lost hundreds of thousands of people to other areas with a better quality of life, more affordability, greater public safety. So you've said a lot. I'm not going to sort of, uh, it's okay. I'm not going to get, get into all of it. I think there's a lot of interesting parts of that, that we could discuss a lot, but the essential sort of question that remains is part of why this plan was passed was to create billions of dollars for the MTA capital plan. If that's not there, then what? Right. And, and, and there was criticism. Listen, there was criticism of congestion pricing being passed as so focused. It's, it's mandated in the law to raise a billion dollars a year. Right. I mean, it's not uh, the, the, the metric that was focused on was the revenue to fund the capital plan, because this also came out of these bitter, bitter, bitter state and city fights over funding the MTA capital plan. But there was criticism of that, but again, this has been passed and it's it's moving ahead. Are there possibilities for stopping it or changing it? Sure, but the MTA capital plan still relies on billions of dollars as a result of congestion pricing and then the borrowing that it will fund. Um, how do you replace that if you don't want something like that to go forward? I'm, I'm and I'm, I don't mean to focus just on this issue, but trying to get your perspective on things like how policy meets these very important fiscal questions. Well, this is one of the perfect examples as well, where the controller can have a greater impact. One of the areas that I, well, one of the two main areas aside from the uh, state education department is the MTA, where of course there are periodic audits of different parts of the MTA, Where, but this is where you really need to do a particularly in-depth analysis where you not only do a performance review, but you try to make recommendations as to ways that the monies could be better spent, where you could find ways to streamline, where you could reprioritize things. 
Um, <clears throat> because this is what you really get down to it. You know, you only have a, you only have so much, so many resources, right? And you can only squeeze blood from a stone only so far. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can't expect to simply solve all your problems with higher taxation. Uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, uh, Delgado said recently, a couple of days ago, well, we expect tax revenues are going to come down next year. So we have to really thinking about we might have to raise taxes or maybe grow, you know, increase spending at a lower rate than we expected. But what I say, notice the option that's not even being accounted for or considered. How about actually cutting spending? How about trying to reduce the size of government? Why is it that the only solutions are to raise taxes, raise revenue from the taxpayers, or simply not grow as much? How about you don't grow at all? How about maybe you find ways to streamline? And I think that's what's missing in a lot of this. And I know it's obviously it's not it's not a, a problem that can be solved overnight. But I remember talking to you last year about different ways to revamp budgeting and revamp the way that you look at at, at the city government at the time, which can be very applicable to the state government in terms of implementing performance-based budgeting uh, throughout the state. Obviously, we're not the executive or the legislative, but we have a role to play to, again, advocate for these things, identify them, include them in our audits and in our recommendations of implementing performance-based budgeting as a way to get to zero-based budgeting, where every year every dollar should be accounted for. Not simply assuming that last year is the base for the following year. And of course, by default, we get to grow more. Let me um, come to a few other things. Um, The management of the pension fund, uh, as I said, just an enormous responsibility of the state controller, obviously. Um, You have questioned Comptroller DiNapoli on how he's approaching um, uh, fossil fuel related investments and this sort of uh, approach to getting the pension fund um, out of of certain holdings and sort of um, implying that he's he's over influenced by political considerations in terms in, in, in managing the pension fund and worrying about return on investment there and ensuring that the pension fund is is funded and that retirees are are taken care of. Can you say a little bit about how you would do things differently? And I know the concept of ESG uh, investment, environmental, social governance considerations uh, came up a little bit in the debate, but if you could share a little bit more your sort of philosophy on how you bring in sort of a, a, a perspective on investment that um, considers the sort of wide variety of risks and opportunities and challenges and how you would approach this uh, huge part of the job. Well, it's interesting Mr. Napoli, he was sort of digging a little bit at me about my financial background, my Wall Street background. And I had to remind him that ESG was in many ways a creation of Wall Street. And in fact, in that my perked, early- that perked my ears up a bit when you said that, you know, I mean, uh, and I mean, that's why I'm asking you to, to explain more, because I think it's very interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. So in my early years, particularly when I covered emerging markets, emerging markets tend to be less transparent, more volatile. And when you're looking at companies outside of places like the UK or the US, um, the reporting standards are not the same. So we used to look... ESG for us was a consideration in making 
investment decisions because a environmental we wanted to make sure we weren't investing in a company that was poisoning the water or or you know dumping toxic waste or things of that nature uh social uh we wanted to make sure that we have a a company that's not engaged in criminal activity or bribing um you know bribing government officials and that type of thing which is something that that actually is probably more common than you would imagine uh, mm-hmm. especially in in less transparent markets and then of course governance corporate governance because when you looking at corporate boards making sure that the directors are truly independent that they're not just proxies for maybe some of the the families that own the company they have them and have super shares that despite the fact that they issued shares to the public they still have all of the voting control regardless of what per actual percentage of the shares they have making sure also that the directors that they are bringing on board are not for example hunter biden being put on a board of a ukrainian natural gas company despite the fact that he doesn't actually know anything about the energy sector much less about ukraine making sure that you're actually bringing independent directors that add value to the company that will improve the management of the company and will make the company more profitable thereby leading to better returns and investment that's what ESG initially was intended to be but what i say has degenerated over the years from a consideration or a tool in part of your investment management decisions to sort of an end game in and of itself and to what i maybe crudely call a box checking exercise so for example racial equity audits it's good to have diversity i'm latino like i, I think i've told you before i'm latino financial professional want to give me 100 million dollars wonderful but the point being that the purpose to manage diversity what to manage a hundred million dollars exactly. to manage. No. To manage <laughs> yeah. Of course. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know I'm kidding. Go ahead. Yeah. But the, the value of diversity, as I reminded Mr. Napoli, in my opinion, and that's the way that like I wish to say the college catalogs used to um market it as such back in the 80s was listen, it's the confluence of people with different experiences, different points of view, bringing it together so they can share those points of views and as a way to enrich college life, or in this case enrich the corporate boards of corporations or enrich the country but the notion that you just have a whole bunch of people who look differently that check off certain boxes but at the same of the, at the end of the day they all share the same group think that's not diversity and oftentimes what you're getting are people with the same types of beliefs about everything but so long as they uh, you know the, that favorite phrase they look like america then that's what you call diverse. To me, it's not simply about looking like America, quote unquote, it's by actually reflecting the tapestry of opinions and experiences and the richness that is America. And that only comes from intellectual diversity, not just simply uh, an aesthetic diversity, right? So this is why I think ESG had kind of gone off the rails. And then if you want to get a little bit, if you will, more technical, even CalPERS, which is the California retirement uh California state retirement plan which is the largest in the nation even they're coming to terms with the fact that simply following ESG as the main driver of investment decisions rather than just simply a, a consideration is not necessarily leading to better managed companies or superior investment returns and in such a case if you're not achieving those things with those particular investment uh with that investment push then you are actually violating your fiduciary duty because your fiduciary duty is making sure that that pension plan is growing at a rate 
and, and at a level where you will be able to keep your promises to the retirees. So you want to maximize returns while minimizing risk and ensuring that you will be generating the assets needed to pay all those annuities to all those retirees. So the fact that you're going to say, well, I know ESG doesn't give me superior returns. I know some of these things seem to be, in my opinion, a bit shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, because, for example, I give the example of Amazon. You had people who were trying to organize in Staten Island at Amazon. And while most of the Democrats were for, not the whole time, but initially kind of ignoring them a bit, and including Mr. Napoli, Mr. Napoli instead was praising Amazon for wanting to do racial equity audits. Well, as a shareholder who's concerned about the stability and about the future of, let's say, my investment in Amazon.com, what should I be more concerned about? Making sure that my employees are the employees of my uh, of the company are being well taken care of, that if they're looking to unionize, that that's something that makes sense, that that's something that should happen. Or am I concerned about the board of directors doing conducting racial equity audits? This is why I'm, like I said, I I'm I'm, I'm a very uh, I'm, I look at things a bit more bluntly than others, and and I I find a lot of these things boils down to a lot of style over substance. I find very little substance in them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And just say a little bit more about the approach to climate risks, environmental risks. The controller, um, you know, was was pushed very hard for a long time from his left before he took more of the sort of bigger steps that he's taken on his uh, climate action plan of sorts. Um one of the most recent things he he did earlier this year was uh, the state pension fan, uh, fund calling on corporations to address uh, some of these risks and shareholder proposals, you know, seeking to push lower greenhouse gas emissions and greater disclosure uh, on climate change, potential impacts on businesses and so forth. Are there pieces of his approach on that that you would shift drastically? Are there things you would do very differently? Would you do away with that whole plan? Do you think it's too much of a focus on climate risks in in the investment portfolio? How would you approach that specific area that's been the focus of so much attention? Well, I certainly think that the whole issue of climate change as a whole should not be the the primary driving force behind all the investment decisions that are made in the portfolio. I really don't. I mean, and I'm sure, of course, he's going to say, well, it's not the main one. But when Mr. DiNapoli, uh, recently with Pat Kieran in our New York one, he was asked, what is your primary thing? What is your primary goal that you're looking to accomplish if, ele- if reelected? He basically said, oh, I want to get my climate change agenda. Not I want to make sure that my pension fund is solvent. Not I want to make sure that in a rising interest rate environment, I'm hedging the portfolio against that to make sure that the value doesn't get suppressed. And he's not saying something, for example, which I brought up to him yesterday. What are you doing to protect the portfolio against another potential geopolitical crisis, this case, China, if it happens between China and Taiwan? The divestment from Russia was completely bungled. We basically couldn't divest. We had to eat the losses on that, at least for the foreseeable future. We have many more billions of dollars of exposure to China that we should be finding ways to make sure we mitigate that risk. And first, Mr. Napoli says, oh, we don't have that much exposure, which A, it's not true. But B, and I'm sure things work out. In, in his responses is basically, we've gone through 9-11, we've gone through the big recession, we've gone through many things, and you know, I'm sure things will work out. 
I'm sure he's got very good professionals working with him that thankfully helped carry him along the way. But as the controller and as the person who sets the direction of the pension plan, when your direction is to basically deal with this particular ideological, um, because in many ways, the whole climate change, whether you you want to accept it or not, or, or, or like it or not, it's become very politicized. And it and it even encompasses things that don't seem to really even have to do with the climate in, in many ways. Um, you really, you know, you really need to have a controller that is looking at these uh, tangible issues that will affect the pension plan, because you are in charge of 270, probably less than that right now, because the market's gone down. But $270 billion of other people's money that people are going to count on after working for a long time for the state government, they're counting that for their retirement. And it's like I told you, I think last year, if in 10 years a retiree is eating cat food, that person's not going to say, well, you know, you ran my pension fund into the ground, but at least I'm so glad that. You were taking, you know, you did it in a, in a really diversified, woke, climate conscious way. I don't think they're going to be saying that. They're going to be saying, what happened to my check? What happened to my pension plan? All right. Well, we've got many other things to discuss, but we're going to leave it there. Um, Paul Rodriguez, I appreciate the time. Any last word you want to have here? Just take one more minute for voters uh, as we wrap up. You know, there's a lot of things on my list. We didn't get to any other uh, either specific topic you want to just take a minute on or just one more minute on uh, sort of a closing closing argument here. Uh, to you know, uh, first of all, I just want to thank you because you uh, and and I appreciate you always uh, indulge me and allow me to to share my my views, and I'd be happy to come uh, another time before election uh, if you have the time and if you have the inclination. But I just want to thank you. I want sure. really the people out there to know that I am running to represent you, to be your advocate for economic development, to provide oversight, to make sure that your money is not being squandered, and to make sure that the pension fund is run in a, in a more professional way from the point of view of taking the politics out of it and not running the pension fund as if it were a private activist hedge fund. Mr. Napolio is always criticizing hedge fund managers, but he doesn't mind you know, having some hedge fund-like activities within his pension plan if it supports his particular political views. Mm-hmm. All right. We will leave it there. Paul Rodriguez, Republican and Conservative Party nominee for New York State Comptroller in this year's election. We're speaking here on October 20th. We're just a couple weeks really away from Election Day. Absentee balloting has begun. Early voting coming up. Lots of opportunities for folks to vote. So get ready to vote. Make sure you know who's and what positions are on the ballot and the ballot question or question on the back of your ballot uh, and much more. Uh, Paul Rodriguez, thanks very much for the time and be well. Thank you.